you get carried away with the notion of saving people. For me, that started with my alleged ministry calling, and I got very carried away. I got carried away from a real college, from law school, from any semblance of a normal adolescence and college experience, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. My own saving people thing has gotten me in trouble more than once as an adult, too. The more you watch someone spiral downward, and the more you start blaming yourself, the more you then start spiraling downward, and that's where really horrible, nasty thoughts start infiltrating, right. and you start feeling worthless, and you start feeling like a failure, and it becomes difficult to live with yourself. You aren't a superhero, and you aren't anyone's savior, even if they tell you as much, and sometimes they do. That doesn't mean you're doing something right. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. You jump, I jump. They're my friends. I've got to help them. Fuck the Prime Directive. These people are going to die. Come with me if you want to live. You know, pop culture really grooms us for what we're going to be talking about tonight, as does evangelical thought. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we're going to tackle a subject that I've toyed with for a few months now at least. So no matter who is listening and already thinking this episode is about them based on the title alone and... There is more potential for this than any of them could possibly individually think. I assure you and the rest of the listeners that this episode isn't directly about anyone outside the room we're recording in. I thought it was a good place to insert the topic because I think it flows well on the heels of last week's conversation. I think of the average pastor when I think of this concept because many members of the clergy have some or all of the traits associated with a savior complex. I do, however, want to steer away from the spiritual side of this and talk more about how it affects everyday people living everyday lives and how to at least start steering away from the more harmful, self-deprecating, and destructive aspects of this. The savior complex is something I've lived with since at least my teen years, and I want to explain what it looks like, how it manifests, and why it's important for all of us to progressively learn how to channel those tendencies into more productive actions and behaviors. For once, we're not going to point fingers at evangelicals beyond referencing a little bit of how this subject relates to evangelical thought. This is about you as an individual. It probably relates to you more as an ex-evangelical, but this is, on its face, a secular concept that needs to be looked at from the standpoint of how we become better people while living with and properly managing those personality traits. But before we get into that, I do believe that my co-host has two more stories on the Christians behaving badly front that she wants to discuss with us tonight. So what have you got for us? Well, my stories tonight mostly come from the friendly atheist over on Patheos, and I'm not sure if this first one is behaving badly or just being ignorant that there are people out there who don't believe in Christ. But that's their delusion, isn't it? That everybody, at least on some level, if they really think hard about it in their heart of hearts, they know that the gospel is true, yes, right? Yes, of course. That's their mindset. So let's see where it takes us in this story. 
<laughs> the owner of a furniture store in Conway, South Carolina, brags that she hides a cross in every piece of furniture they sell. She considers it a blessing, and she feels that every home needs a blessing of some kind. But do we need that one? I'm not sure if we need that one. I'm certain we don't, as a matter of fact. I don't think so. I can see where this lady is coming from, and honestly, I don't see her as trying to be inconsiderate. But the problem is that she is being inconsiderate. Oh, just a little just a bit. Just a tad. She explains that while she and her husband were on vacation, she found a little wood shop that was selling bags of little tiny crosses. At first, she was just intending to put them in a little bowl on the counter for people to take after they paid at the cash register. I guess, like, after dinner mints at a restaurant? Well, I can, yeah. I mean, just thinking about who these people are. <laughs> and I, we, we saw this in Wicca a oh, few yeah, times. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, little, little, little pieces of crystal and whatnot. Yeah that they'll put out in a store or at an event or something yes. like that. So yeah, I could certainly see a Christian business doing something just like that. Yes. But they had other plans for these crosses, didn't they? Yes, but then she had a better idea. Quote, but then you know when you have those thoughts in the shower, that's when your thoughts always come to you. So it just popped in my head. And of course, I'm sure it was Jesus talking to me. Of course it was. Of course it was. But he said, you know, put one in every piece of furniture. So every piece of furniture in here, once we put it on the floor and get the price tag on it, we stick the cross in there. Like Reagan? <laughs> that's kind of No, sick. that's gross. Stop <laughs> it. Oh, God. I, I didn't even know what you were talking about at first. And now I know. And knowing is half the battle. Uh, yeah, it's all the battle. She says that it's really helped some people. One customer, for instance, she said that she had really been going through a bad time in her life. And she bought the furniture and we delivered it. After we left, she was putting her stuff in her chest of drawers. And she opened it up and there was the cross. It was a sign to her. A sign that someone had fucking put it there. Yeah, that's about it. But she considered it a sign. And I'm wondering... What was the sign for? And, you know, that that could be dangerous, you it know. It could be a sign of anything because yes. anything that you're going to attribute to it is coming out of your own head. Right. So right. it could Just, be a sign for whatever it is you want it to be a sign for. Right. You and know, it's for me, be... it would be a sign of going back and asking for my money back because I didn't order the indoctrination option yes. with my furniture. <laughs> I just, I didn't want a little Jesus with that. We don't need a little Jesus right this very minute. No, we no, do not. No, we do not. Oh, I'm sure this lady means well, but honestly, what if it were a Muslim putting the crescent moon and star into every item they sold in their store? Can you imagine the blowback? Or a Wiccan putting a little pentacle in there. The same woman would be screaming about how they're trying to kidnap and sacrifice their children and must be stopped. Now, here's the thing. If I took a drawer out of my dresser and I looked at the bottom of it and there was a little Baphomet etched into <laughs> it, I might actually be impressed. Yes. Yeah, that would be pretty See, that wouldn't offend me. Finding yes. a cross offends me, but Baphomet, no, he's my boy. It's all good. Right, but this woman who owned the store, oh, she would just go off the rails. Again, while I don't think this lady means any harm, it's still disturbing. 
the culture we live in is so saturated with Christianity. Oh, Who yeah. hasn't heard of Jesus? I can't imagine there's one person living in America who doesn't know who Jesus is. But for some reason, they've got to keep proselytizing. I guess they feel that if they keep repeating themselves, maybe their witness will stick. Or maybe it'll just do the job for them because so few of them actually ever witness in the first place. I never did. I hated it. I hated the fact that for our evangelism class, we had to like witness to five people. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to witness to five people. No, no. But you see, here's the thing. You've been commissioned to witness to everyone who will listen to you. But I'd rather that come from my deeds and the way I act towards people than my words. That's true. I mean, Jesus never said that this was the formula. Right. When he gave the Great Commission, he never gave a formula aside from baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But by the time you get to that point, you've already gotten through to them. Right. So however you decide to get through to them, as long as you are doing that, then really you're doing your job. Right. There's there's very little that they can say in argument to that, but I had to do the same thing. I didn't find it as difficult or right. as off-putting as you did, right. only because I had a head start. You know, yeah, I, I you, spent my high school years doing you've this. You've been doing this since you were 14 years old. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm from New England. I don't like to talk about religion, money, or politics. Of course, now that's kind of all gone out the window. But Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, these are subjects that you really can't get away from, especially if you're running a podcast about oh, one no. of them. Oh, no. No, this is true. Yeah. This is true. So, yeah, you got your Jesus on my bureau. That's <laughs> And those are two things that don't necessarily go together. But they don't together. need to go together. <laughs> they don't need to go together. Okay, what else have you got for us tonight? <laughs> okay, another CBB news. Christian prophetess. I like that. CBB news. CBB Christians news. behaving CBB badly. badly. Christian prophetess Cat Care has made another headline in the on the friendly atheist by claiming she has a picture of angels battling demons. And she'll put it on the internet if she can find it. If she can find it, what the fuck did she do with it? I mean, if I had a picture of that, I'd protect it. Right, or put it out on the internet. What better way could you actually prove that spiritual beings exist? Oh, I have this picture. There's my proof. Oh, you want to see it? Yeah, I'll post it if I can find it. Right. Who the hell is she trying to kid? I don't know. But here's the thing. She's probably successfully kidding a lot of people. Oh, that's That's the sad part. Yeah, I'm sure she is. You really can't make this stuff up, but actually you can. Ms. Care has also created some waves by claiming that heaven has football and also a giant warehouse in heaven where they keep body parts as replacements so they can bring them down for believers who are praying for them. Praying for body parts? Like, restore my liver or restore my arm. And I, I'm like, I've heard her talk about oh, this. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. They got this warehouse and, and it's all about the intercessory right. angle with this. Okay. Right. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Got it. Apparently, the warehouse is a very complicated system for granting those body parts to humans on Earth. It is really weird. I'm just going to say that right now. I've heard her talk about this, and it's like, what do they use for the bills of lading? 
I'm like, what kind of paper? Are they using parchment? I would expect Does that. she claim that there's a bill of lading for all of these? It just, it feels that way. It okay. feels like she is talking about an actual factual warehouse. Mm-hmm. Like we would run it on earth, you know, with angels. And the, like, she makes a big deal about how they wrap them up like presents. And yeah, that's exactly how I reacted the first time. I heard her talk about this. Doesn't it suck how there are these people out there that have these magnificent imaginations? I mean, I and wish this is I had the this shit much. that they channel it into. It's yeah. so sad. It's really bad. So, if you want to find more of Cat Care's interesting thoughts about heaven, she's often a guest on Steve Schultz's YouTube channel called Elijah Streams. Oh, why do we have to tell people about that? No, don't, don't, don't watch this. Don't watch don't it. Watch this drivel. Don't watch it. But he seems like a very gullible man, buying just about everything she says with no follow-up questions. In this latest story, she declaims her vast knowledge about spiritual beings, demons, the host of heaven, and guardian angels. All right, here's a quote. I have to read. Oh, it off the here website. comes the quote. Yes. The quote. The quote. Well, first she starts out by, like, saying that your guardian angels look like people with wings, okay? I just, what? So they're very Hollywood in their presentation. Got it. But the hosts don't, mostly don't, ever look like people. They look like creatures. Or they're made out of things that like light or sound. But they're real and they're fierce. They can battle the demonic. They can shred them but not kill them. And I mean, they will literally shred them. They can leave marks on them, but they can't kill them. It almost sounds like a video game. It does. You know, like they can shred them, but then what? They respawn? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. And she goes on to say, I've seen, if I find it, I'm going to show it on a live stream. I'll just hold it up and show it to people. (sighs) I literally took a picture one time when I first invited Heaven's Army. According to the protocol the father gave me, whatever protocol that is, I invited Heaven's Army to be one of my weapons. They began showing up outside in the sky over my home. And one time, not kidding, not kidding, there was a whole group of them, the ones that looked like lions. They're the royal guards. (laughs) They had some demons in chains and brought them over my roof and I got a picture. And she was the only one who saw. The only one who saw it. Wow. And Schultz goes, really? And she goes on to say, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. They were showing me the ones they had captured and were dragging either for judgment because I have been in the courtrooms of heaven. Oh, goodness Where sometimes demons are dragged up and judged and then the father deals with them. They're either thrown in a dry place, they're thrown in chains. That's what spirit force is all about. You're going to learn so much about that, so I don't have time. I won't answer any questions, but I can tell you, you can command your army if you have an army. It really does sound like a video game. It does. And not even a high-quality video not game. Like one. One of these, one of these cell phone games that you of- have to pay into every single time you want to like knock an arrow or something yeah um she's written two books about heaven and has two websites where you can read more about all of these things that she talks about and she's the president of one quest 
International Corporation, which is founded for the purpose of revealing heaven to the earth. It looks like she's got a pretty tidy income from making stuff up or just explaining whatever heaven dream she had the night before. And it's every bit as unique as everybody else's heaven dreams yes. are. Whatever these people are seeing in, in near-death experiences or just dreams that they've decided are near-death experiences, there's a lot of different interpretations yeah. of what this looks like, which leads me to believe that either it's a trick of our own brains that we may see something at the point of death, that our brains may do something that has a dreamlike quality to it, or they're just attention-seeking idiots yeah. that have this thing running through their head and decide that there's an audience for it. Yeah, it's really weird, and I really want to see a courtroom show set in heaven. I know, she's been in the courts of heaven. Yes, there is a courtroom, and I guess the demons get brought up on charges every so often. I'm like, what? How? <laughs> Why? She and David A.R. White need to collaborate. They need to collaborate on a series. This is real Pure Flix gold yes. that we're talking about here. The, uh, the courts of heaven. It's the Pure Flix equivalent of law and order. We'll call it the courts of heaven. Give it its own doink doink and everything. <laughs> These are the courts of heaven. In the courts of heaven, the justice system is made up of the righteous and the unclean. These are their stories. Dong dong. There we go. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's all I got for today. It was just a little, I guess, a palate cleanser before we get into the so, heavy yeah. stuff. So basically, a little sorbet to yes. cleanse the palate so that we can swallow what's coming next i don't i don't know um, <laughs> but i always walk away from these segments just you know hoping that i don't spend so much time shaking my head after that i can't <laughs> read my notes for the main segment and yeah these are these are head shakers both of yeah, them are head shakers bad. um you know you got your jesus on my bureau oh, <laughs> just give just give me a small break with this <laughs> anyway, I'm kind of in an odd mood, and this is kind of a heavy topic that we're getting into tonight, mm -hmm. but I also think that once we get toward the end, we got a little bit of that levity to ease the tension yes. that is going to reveal a few things about the spider that maybe I don't want the whole world to know, but after this coming Sunday, it's going to be a mood issue. Yeah. And just before we get into our main segment just want to let you know that our patreon is active at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network i got a huge surprise this week someone someone opted in at Chainbreaker level that's 25 bucks a month and that's definitely going to help us out this is one of my relatives who i'm not sure how she stumbled upon the show but she stumbled upon it and recognized who was doing it and thank you. Thank you so much for acknowledging what we're doing and helping us out in this way. All of the stuff at the upper tiers, the perks that we are trying to establish for the upper tiers require just one small thing for us to make them work. And that's a larger, a larger base of patrons. We need your help. Even at just $5 level, forget about 25 bucks a month. Forget about that. For, just think in terms of like a buck and change per episode and something that you can do for us every month that will help us out and help keep things moving forward a little bit. Because what this has done for us is given us the opportunity to cover 
most of the costs of just putting the show out there, hosting the show and getting it into your hands through wherever you get podcasts. Most of the cost of that, most of the cost of that is going to be covered with the patrons that we have right now. So if you would like for us to be able to do a little bit more, be able to provide you with more shows, more content, more of the stuff that we do best, and also to start looking at some of these subjects from slightly different angles, because I've got ideas for other shows. What I need is time. And in order to liberate more of my time, then I need to be able to say no to a couple of hours of work here and there Mm -hmm. and be able to devote a little bit more time to this. Right now, we are definitely in pay the bills mode, and it's difficult for me to even carve out the time to do what we do every week, but we get it done. And I'm not at all complaining about the time that it takes or the effort that it takes because we're doing this for you. We're doing it for people who are coming out of this thing called evangelical Christianity. And we absolutely positively want to be here to help you and to give you the resources that you need to get and stay unbound. That is my number one priority. I'm not in this to get rich or to make money or even make a living off of it. It would be nice if we reached that point. But all I really want to do here is to write by our patrons and to also start bringing more content to the table that has a little bit more of a broad audience in mind. And in order to be able to do these things, then I need to be able to liberate some time. And in order to liberate some time, I need some more resources. That's what it boils down to. So if you have the means, starting out at the $5 level, just go on over to patreon.com slash unbound podcast network and make your pledge. You'll be glad you did. And You'll be even more glad a few months down the road when there's more content for you to consume and we're able to do a little bit more with what we're doing right now, up the quality just a little bit, be able to get some new equipment. Um, My Mac needs a little bit of TLC and that costs money too. So all of these things are things to keep in mind when you're deciding whether or not you want to or are able to help us out if you flat out can't like i say all the time just keep listening just keep getting what you need and help us out by telling other people about the show help us with your likes your shares your five star ratings and all of the things that go along with making a podcast successful and with that let's get into our main topic a savior complex wikipedia gives two definitions first they say a savior complex also known as a messiah or christ complex is a state of mind in which an individual holds a belief that they are destined to become a savior today or in the near future i like the second definition better the term can also refer to a state of mind in which an individual believes that they are responsible for saving or assisting others We are going to focus on the second interpretation as the basis for this conversation. In extreme cases, savior complexes manifest in things like cult leaders and vigilantes. In most cases, it involves an individual who is driven to help others they perceive to be both in some kind of distress and in a position to be saved. And we're not even talking spiritually. We're talking mentally, emotionally, financially, or in any other way. So we're not talking about someone witnessing to someone here per se, although that can be part of it. 
These interactions are typically one-on-one -on -one and can involve both romantic and platonic feelings and motivations. So it can be aimed at someone you love or just someone that you have come to care about because you have learned about the problems that they're going through and your brain just goes into save them mode. And that is the thing that happens. If there was anything about me that put me within the realm of a good candidate for full-time ministry, it's this. You know, I feel like I'm opening an AA meeting here or uh, Savior Complex is anonymous. I'm Spider and I have a Savior Complex and I know it, but I've gotten better at managing it over time and I'm going to show you how. And I'm going to also explain to you why it's necessary to get it under wraps because this kind of thing can take you down some very, very dark corners. And I'm going to see if maybe I can help one or two people avoid that tonight or avoid going back into those dark corners. This kind of mindset, like I said, has been part of my makeup for a long while, as long as I can remember, really. For me, it has always revolved around one of two things, though someone I cared about being in distress, or a personal vendetta that involved removing negative influences, behaviors, or circumstances from a person's life. I can think back to my teenage years with this, and there were probably instances before. If that tendency existed in me as a child, it was overshadowed by my constant need for care and help. I have had seven surgeries to correct clubbed feet and spent so much time as a child being seen to by others. I flat out didn't have time to overload on empathy for other people. When did that start changing? On August 4th, 1985, the day I got saved. After that, it became all about not letting people go to hell. I wasn't exactly a world-class evangelist, but I was vocal about what I believed, and it gave me a huge rush when people were receptive to what I had to say about my faith and how it could help them. I started looking at families that were clearly or at least perceptibly unchurched and my mind would go into places where I saw this happy, functional family screaming and burning in hell together and those kinds of images started getting more common and more vivid in my mind. I couldn't possibly just sit back and let that happen. And yes, these things were in my head a lot. I would see happy people going about their day, and the very first thing that I would want to know is, are they saved? Please tell me they're saved, because I can't bear the thought of this happy family just going to hell because they don't know Jesus. Well, they're right there, buddy. Why don't you do something about it? That is the way that my mind works in the earliest embryonic stages of this saving people thing of mine. I'm, gonna, I'm going to qualify that reference in a little while, too. So, of course, when it was suggested to me that I consider going into full-time ministry, that part of me kicked in instantly, and it drove every decision I made about my future from about age 15 forward. I stayed at that sad, sorry excuse for a college for four fucking years, and in case it's still unclear, I was fucking miserable there. And I stayed there because... That was where I was going to learn how to literally, eternally save people. I was going to help people fix all their problems in their lives with Jesus, praise God. And I had finally found this way and had a means of making this happen. And I intended to use every weapon in my arsenal to keep people out of hell. It was a huge motivator for me. And 
it was a huge rush to think that this was what my life was going to be, that people will be in heaven because I was obedient to this calling when I was 15. But before I delve too deeply into my own story, and I will have lots more to say about this on a personal level, I just want to state again for the record that this is far from an evangelical thing. It's just that, like with anything else, it's a personality trait that they like to exploit. As youth pastors in the Assemblies of God, it is expected that we, and I'm being inclusive here because I was in fact one of them for a little while, it's expected that we motivate young people to pursue full-time ministry. And again, I don't know about most churches, but I do know that my youth pastor didn't treat this as a blanket goal in his ministry. He didn't try to get everyone to go into the ministry, but when he saw specific traits in people, he zeroed in on us and started aggressively cultivating these thoughts inside our heads. But savior complexes, are such points of relatability for so many. They're actually a huge and often embraced theme in our popular media, especially in movies. It took me decades to figure it out, but some of the most beloved characters out there had major savior complexes that manifested mostly out of conflict. That's where it starts. We see trouble brewing and all of a sudden it's, where's my cape? And here are just a few examples from movies that I really liked and kind of learned this from. To be perfectly honest, first we have the Karate Kid. Okay, Daniel, let Ali and Johnny work out their shit. You don't have to get in the middle of it. But he does, and that is the catalyst for everything else that happens in the movie. You know, this girl that he likes is kind of being harassed by this guy, and he can't just sit back and recognize that they were at least at some point a couple and let them work out their shit. No, he has to get in the middle of it. Then... There's Luke Skywalker. I mean, just pick your vendetta. In the first movie, it was Save the Princess. In the second movie, it was Save My Friends. In the third movie, it was Save Han Solo, and then it was Let's Save My Dad. Okay? Mm. So the whole saving people thing was strong with this one. Superman, the quote-unquote original with Christopher Reeve. Um, original from my lifetime, anyway. The whole notion of him literally spinning the world backwards to turn back time. I have no idea what the pseudoscience is behind that. I think it, it was a cute little thing that they did while you're listening to him being told by his father that it's forbidden for him to interfere in the course of human history. But that's precisely what he's doing here. Why? Because his girlfriend died and yeah. he couldn't deal with it. But he had also done a whole lot else during the course of that day to interfere with what should have happened anyway. That was just kind of the icing on the cake. I remember that part of the movie and him looking so, so proud of himself, of all this great stuff that he did, and then he realizes, oh, fuck, Lois. And that's when it goes full tilt with him. And he decides the best thing to do is to just turn back time. So he does this thing that I think science would agree would kind of tear the planet apart. It would have just been all over <laughs> yeah. at that point. But again, it's a movie. Let's suspend our disbelief and just call it a manifestation of Kal-El's savior complex. And I honestly, he was kind of born with that. Yeah. Then we've got Captain James T. Kirk, who just blows off the prime directive whenever it suits him, whenever there are people or beings or anything to be saved. I think about the second movie in the new series, Star Trek 
uh, Into Darkness, I think it oh, was, yeah. where at the very beginning of that, he is completely blowing off the, pl- the Prime Directive because this planet with a very primitive human species yeah. is about to explode. So he intervenes and they see him and a whole shitstorm ensues over that. And that was a manifestation of this guy's savior complex. And there were so many in every iteration of that story. There were so many instances where Captain Kirk shows his savior complex. One of my, I'm going to use the word favorites tongue in cheek here, but Jack Dawson from Titanic I'm too involved now. You jump, I jump, remember? And what happens to him in the end, the ultimate self-sacrifice that he makes, the thing that bothers me about it is that it really, really was glorified, even to the point of Rose saying that he saved her in every way a person can be saved. I really think that that's a bad message about how involved you should get with someone after knowing them for a day or two. Yeah. You know, or even on a first meeting, he was ready to jump in after her. If she went overboard, he was prepared and said so. It's like, you jump, I jump. I have to go in after you. I'm too involved now. So it started right there. I said a day or two, the moment they met, he was ready to sacrifice all to save this person. Maybe because there was attraction there, but I didn't see a whole lot of romantic anything at the very beginning. He just wanted the satisfaction of saving this person. And there are so many other examples. But the one that got me, the one that really got me thinking about this in terms of me was Harry Potter. There are so many examples in the earlier books, but a light actually gets shined on it in Order of the Phoenix. where he is told by Hermione that he's overreacting. So Hermione is trying to get him to see reason over this quote-unquote vision that he's had where his godfather, Sirius Black, is being tortured by the baddie in the series, Voldemort. I'm talking like people don't know who fucking Harry Potter is. They know. Um, But... In the book, not so much in the movie. They may have touched on it in the movie, but I think this was a book thing where she comes right out and talks about his saving people thing. Harry, of course, is now convinced that something bad is about to happen to someone that he really, really cares about. And he stops listening to any semblance of reason. And Hermione tries to talk him down. And she says, you know, you... And this isn't a criticism, Harry, but... You do sort of, I mean, don't you think you've got a bit of a saving people thing? And when she says saving people thing, what she means, that's the 15-year-old equivalent of savior complex. So yeah, Harry definitely has that. And then she, out of all of the examples that she has witnessed over the past five years with this kid, she goes right back to something that happened the year before and says and basically says well you know you didn't have to do this there was really no danger involved and you didn't have to do what you did but this is what you do and maybe it's time to step back and just ask yourself whether or not there's a danger here either but at that point you know he's just way too much in the thick of this is happening and I need to do something about it. And I need to save this person. 
And the thing that really gets me about this is the fact that, and, and I, I've thought about this recently, I've contemplated it recently. Had he done nothing, had he seen what was going on here for what it was, or at least allowed someone to to show him just a little bit of reason and act on it, then what happens next probably wouldn't have happened. Right. Okay? Not to give away any huge spoilers, but these movies have been out for a while, even if you've never read the book. He goes to the Ministry of Magic because he thinks that something bad is about to happen to his godfather. And he gets there and there's nothing and there's nobody. But he basically walked into a trap. So now anyone and everyone is involved in this, including his godfather, who winds up being killed by one of the baddies. Now, had he just listened to a little bit of reason and not acted impulsively and not let his savior complex decide how he was going to proceed, I think that Sirius Black probably would have survived. Mm. I think that it would not have been anywhere near as catastrophic. And we're going to talk about that aspect of this a little bit later on too. The actual damage that you can do by asserting your savior complex on someone else. Will people die? Well, that remains to be seen. It's an extreme example, but other bad things can happen. You can do damage to them by being too involved, by being too you jump, I jump. You know what I mean? You can definitely do a degree of damage, and we're going to talk about that going forward. But the last bit that Hermione says to him is the thing that really stuck with me. You get a bit carried away. <laughs> and that right there is the, it, it's the capstone of everything that you do when your savior complex kicks in and it's allowed to manifest unchecked. That right there is the biggest downfall of the savior complex. You get carried away with the notion of saving people. For me, that started with my alleged ministry calling and I got very carried away. I got carried away from a real college, from law school, from any semblance of a normal adolescence and college experience. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. My own saving people thing has gotten me in trouble more than once as an adult too. And I'm just going to let that dangle a little bit because there will be more on that also. Psychology today, I think, provides a more comprehensive description of this as it relates to how it manifests in quote-unquote normal people. Now, I put normal in quotes because while it might not be a personality disorder, a savior complex can and often does manifest as at least a sort of self-perception disruptor. You voluntarily set aside your own needs to see to those of others, you know, just like the average pastor. And that's one of the problems that we addressed last week, is how much they give of themselves and how little they give back to themselves or how little of themselves they'll even acknowledge. But this article in Not Christianity Today, oh hell no, Psychology Today is called The Savior Complex, Why Good Intentions May Have Negative Outcomes by Sarah A. Benton. And a lot of my comments going forward are going to come from what I gleaned from this article and we're going to look at a few direct quotes along the way too. At a first glance, the term savior complex can appear to have a positive connotation. Things like selflessness and self-sacrifice for the good of others sound great on the surface. However, 
there are plenty of negatives that emerge. And when you examine the underlying motivations behind it and the impact it can have on others, it becomes clear that this saving people thing some possess can be problematic. Of course, it sometimes manifests in things like podcasts, too. So there is good and bad that comes from this. The whole concept of this podcast is a means of me feeding my savior complex a little bit. Let's just let's just be honest about it. <laughs> you know, trying to get people to get and stay unbound, that's a real saviory kind of thing. But I also know that I'm not the one saving people. I'm providing information and hoping that it will give them the motivation that they need to save themselves. So I'm at least able to take myself out of the picture enough to, to say, okay, you put that episode out there, people are going to hear it, and they're going to do with it whatever they will. Let one starfish come out of this, and I'll be happy. And that's true. I don't have to save everyone. All I need to do is put the information out there and let you make the decision of whether or not you want to run with it. And I've gotten way, way better at this over time, too. Today, though, I really want to emphasize the dangers of an unchecked savior complex and help you understand that there are both healthy and unhealthy ways that this thing can manifest. In far too many cases, it becomes unhealthy and reaching a point of acceptance that you aren't the Superman, Luke Skywalker, or Harry Potter in someone else's life is not just a good idea. It's a necessary thing with which those of us who have these tendencies need to come to grips. And here's a direct quote from the article. According to the blog PeopleSkillsDecoded.com, the savior complex can be best defined, I like this definition way better, as, quote, a psychological construct which makes a person feel the need to save other people. This person has a strong tendency to seek people who desperately need help and to assist them, often sacrificing their own needs for these people. Many individuals who enter into caring professions such as mental health care, health care, and even those who have loved ones with addictions may have some of these personality characteristics. They're drawn to those who need saving for a variety of reasons. However, their efforts to help others may be of an extreme nature that both deplete them and possibly enable the other individual. Please bookmark that. It's an important part of this. In some of the examples above, I do think that we see the positives of this kind of personality, particularly in the areas of physical and mental health. Um, I've told these stories before, how impressed I was when I had my kidney stone, just how on point those people were, how motivated they were to help strangers. It was something that had a real impact on me. And then there was my fall on Cadillac Mountain that I've also talked about on this show and how people just seemed to appear out of nowhere to help. But I also think of how many healthcare workers wound up infected with COVID and how many even have lost their lives, leaving behind families with young children in some cases in the name of helping strangers. And it's in those examples that I see the kind of price there is to be paid with fueling, nurturing, and acting upon a savior complex. Now, little disclaimer here, I think about the term look for the helpers from Fred Rogers when I think about people who are in these kinds of professions too. And I re remind myself that there is a difference between a helper and a savior figure. Healthcare workers, by and large, fall under the former category. Do they 
all have savior complexes? No, I don't think so. But some of the personality traits are definitely there. They've just figured out a constructive, there's the operative term there, constructive way to channel those tendencies and get paid for using them appropriately. Getting functionally but not emotionally involved in the process of solving people's problems. See, that's the difference between a helper and someone with a savior complex. They understand when it's time to back off, especially emotionally. Now, some people flex their savior complexes because, quote, it's the noble thing to do. Others do it for selfless reasons, while others do it for personal glory and empowerment. Not all motives that drive that saving people thing are pure. And here is one of the most toxic outgrowths of trying too hard to save someone else. Quote, the problem is that trying to save someone does not allow the other individual to take responsibility for his or her own actions and to develop internal motivation. Therefore, the positive or negative changes may only be temporary. Um, I've seen this. I've seen it more times than I want to think about where I've noticed what I consider to be changes in someone that I can relate directly back to my influence and involvement in their life, or at least in my head, that's what I think is happening, is I'm here, I'm doing what I'm doing, and this person is getting better. But the problem is that eventually those parts of them that you are either directly or indirectly trying to change start to revolt. They fight back. They push back very, very aggressively, and I'm going to get into that in a little while too. Don Michael Ruiz is the author of a book called The Four Agreements, A Practical Guide to Personal Freedom. And in it, he makes some observations that people with savior complexes need to learn. And here are just a couple of quotes with a little of my own commentary. Quote, you are never responsible for the actions of others. You are only responsible for you. Okay, but my influence matters. Well, does it though? You know, there are so many different ways of looking at this, and we assign so many different meanings to some of the things that we say that if we're part of this group that has these tendencies, then I think sometimes we put more stock in our own involvement in things than what's due. I'll just leave that right there. I had an example that I wanted to use here, but I'm going to leave that right here. I feel like, you know, getting a little bit too personal is not going to be a good thing. But just understand that not everything is as it seems and not everything has to do with the things that you're doing and the influence that you're having. Quote, whatever you think, whatever you feel, I know is your problem and not my problem. It is the way you see the world. It is nothing personal because you are dealing with yourself, not me. This one is one that I have a really, really, really hard time with because I immediately start blaming myself when a person fails to become better, well, more focused, or happier as a result of me being in their life. I reach a point where I convince myself that the other person's problems are very you jump, I jump in nature, and my brain sticks in that place. It still does. I'm getting better at it, but it still does. I start telling myself that I can get this person to start seeing a better picture of themselves or of other people or of the world by just providing a good example to them. 
I do take it personally when they fail to get better or when they lapse back into old patterns. And I do take how they deal with me very personally. I'm getting better at gravitating away from these things too, but they still exist in my head and they still crop up. Quote, humans are addicted to suffering at different levels and to different degrees. And we support each other in maintaining these addictions. That is so true. That is so true. We become addicted to conflict. We become addicted to our problems and we convince ourselves that these things are such a part of us that it's dangerous to let go of them. And that's bullshit. Again, this is one that I relate to a lot. I've even said it out loud. It's as though this person wants to be miserable. Uh, they keep complaining that no one loves them, but lashes out at anyone who tries. You know, that's been my complaint about more than one person in my life. So often the things that people complain about in their lives are the very things that they will pour every fiber of their being into perpetuating. They live in a perpetual state of self-sabotage and they do whatever they can to keep the would-be savior figure in their lives close just so they can have an outlet for all the frustration they heap on themselves. And this actually impedes their healing because now they have a scapegoat. Now you are the source of all their problems. You are just trying to find something wrong with them. You are forcing them to see themselves through a glass of love, empowerment, and compassion. And they feel threatened by it. They respond to love with hate. They respond to support with abuse. They complain that no one loves them and then drive wedges between themselves and anyone who dares to try. Here's the problem. People with acute savior complexes will keep plugging away. They'll keep trying to chisel away at that wall. They'll keep telling themselves that it doesn't matter how any of this makes them feel just as long as the other person has a chance at getting better. I have used these words in conversations with people. I'm not worried about my own feelings here. I'm worried about you getting well. I've used these words. Okay. And let me tell you something, people. It just doesn't work. Talk about decreasing so someone else can increase. I've totally lost my sense of self trying to save other people. And the biggest and most important lesson that I've learned is that it's a fruitless effort unless and until the other person reaches a point where he or she wants the same changes, fixes, and healings in their life that you want for them. Unless and until they get there, nothing, and I mean nothing, you try to do for them will have any measurable or worthwhile effect. They will remain broken and they'll break you right along with them if you insist on toughing it out with them long enough. If you're in this kind of position and you think you're doing what you're doing for another in the name of love, let me present a new idea to you. If you love them, if you love them, walk away. If you love them, give them the space and the means to start fixing themselves and see what happens. They might, but it's not likely. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but it's not likely that they will ever change. If you love that person, get out of their way. Let them deal with themselves and remove from the equation any means they might have to scapegoat someone else as the source of their problems, namely you. Your effort to fix them is destined 
to keep them broken. If you love them, step aside and give them the opportunity to heal absent of your influence. Note that I said influence, not love. It's perfectly okay to go on loving them. It's not okay for you to use your love for them to keep them in the place they are right now. I know that's not your intention, but that's what you're doing. That is what you're doing. You won't fix them by loving them harder, period. They have to learn to love themselves enough to want better. And there is nothing. You hear that? There's nothing you can do to make that happen. They don't love you back because they can't. They would need to be able to love themselves first to even have a chance. And this is another trap I've fallen into. I know she would love me if she could. All right, fine. Maybe that's true. Here's the problem. She can't. So it doesn't matter. See, that's where we need to eventually get in the thought process here. Most people with savior complexes stop at that first part. I know she would love me if she could. But part B matters. That part about she can't, so it doesn't matter. It matters. And we need to learn to let our thoughts create that kind of rational balance. Part A is emotion. Part B is intellect. And both need to have an equal say. So how do we go about making this happen? The Psychology Today article lends some excellent advice that I'm going to put my own spin on for you right now. For starters, use your intellect to process and assess your emotions. It goes back to those awesome Amy Grant lyrics, use your head to guard your heart. How is maintaining this relationship making you feel? If you aren't happy, that's a red flag. If you feel disrespected, that's one too. If it feels like you're putting in all the effort and the other person is just siphoning love off of you, you're right. Left to emotion alone, none of this will matter. You will keep plugging away, watching the other person hurt, and making excuses for how they treat you. Let your intellect have its say. It's right. It's right. And you need to listen. Next, set boundaries that allow you to care, but not become immersed in the other person's problems. It's at that point that saving them becomes a priority. Know when to say when. Offer moral support, but don't take the spotlight as the source of help in their lives. As soon as that person becomes your project, you're trapped. Now their happiness affects yours. They're unhappy, you're unhappy. When they fail, it's your fault. Stay out of it. My God, I've said that too. When you're unhappy, I'm unhappy. I've said it more than once. Stay out of it. Um, try this instead. Let me know how that works out. You know what that does? It demonstrates care without allowing the other person to look to you for support. Show interest and avoid immersion. This is one I really need to learn how to do better. I really need to learn how to do this one better. Next, add the word no to your vocabulary. Stop automatically saying yes whenever someone wants your help or involvement. Don't like coming back with an immediate no? Ask your therapist if maybe is right for you. Maybe gives yourself the time to assess whether what is being asked of you is reasonable or not. Should this person even be asking you for this? Is it appropriate to get involved? Sometimes the answers to these questions are obvious. For the rest, there's maybe. 
and you can sleep on it. Next, take your time deciding how to proceed. This covers how involved you get in someone's life or problems. Don't be impulsive. Don't make decisions on the basis of emotion alone. Again, sleep on it is good policy. It gives the brain the chance to process things and you will make better decisions. Next, have your own competent, consistent support base. In other words, find a therapist and bounce everything off of them. Have friends that you can talk to about these things and listen to them when they tell you you're going off the deep end. Listen to them when they warn you about the other person. Listen to them when they come back at your emotional tizzy with rationalization. Listen to them. And also keep in mind, if you decide to start talking to a therapist about this stuff, that good therapists don't offer advice or tell you what to do. You've got friends for that. What a therapist does is guide your thoughts in appropriate directions so you can find answers and make decisions that are right for you and make them independently. Next, have the guts to let people you love crash and burn. It's okay. Listen to me. It's okay to give advice when it's asked for. It's fine to care what happens to someone when they make bad choices. It's not okay to become their scapegoat when they make bad choices. And it's never good to find yourself stuck in the middle. Get comfortable with the idea of letting people make mistakes. Even if you know it's going to rip your own heart out. Even if you know how much it's going to hurt you to watch them go through it. You need to get to the point where you let them make their own mistakes. Next, let go of the results or consequences. If you don't get too immersed, there's no way that you or anyone else can point a finger of blame at you. A toxic will try, but you will know the truth. And they'll come at you with all kinds of shit. You could have done X for me and kept me from getting hurt and you didn't. Well, maybe, but in the midst of all that, before you let that affect you, understand this. You did something far better. You gave that person the opportunity to learn and grow, whether they choose to do so as a result of the experience or not. You left the door open for that. Getting too involved will slam it shut. What they learn and how they react are not your problem. Take your cues from Elsa and let it go. Just let it go. Next, never love someone more than they are willing to love you. Never be more supportive of another person than they are of you. Never care more about someone else's success than they do. And you know what? I struggle with this. In my everyday life, in the work that I do, I struggle with this because I want these kids to succeed. Some of them just flat out don't care about succeeding. And I've gotten way better at writing these things off as well in my head. It's like I have to keep reminding myself, okay, this person allegedly wants to get a driver's license, but they're not putting in the work to get good at this thing called driving so that they can get that license. That's not my fault, and it's not my problem. The horse has been led to water. It refused to drink. Oh, well. And I have to remind myself, I did my job. I taught this thing. If this person isn't going to learn it, if they aren't going to be motivated to learn it, that is not my problem. Intellectually, I understand this. Emotionally, it is still something that I grapple with like crazy day to day. 
but the point here is that you need to demand balance in your emotions and in the way that other people treat you. When it comes to what you do for other people, never do more than they're willing to do for you. Never love more than they're willing to love you back. It's so important. Finally, develop clear personal definitions of what help and care are, what they look like and how they manifest. Dial back your response long before you're ever in the situation. Knowing your own boundaries and sticking to them, and there's the tricky bit, always sticking to them. Knowing your boundaries and sticking to them will keep you from getting hurt and enabling certain behaviors and attitudes in the people who look to you for help and support. There's no doubt that when Fred Rogers told the story of the helpers on his show, he was referring to people who took appropriate and selfless action when they saw others in distress. Being a helper is a good thing. It was helpers that I encountered on Cadillac, and it was helpers that I encountered when I had my kidney stone. It's when you cross the line between helping and fixing where things start to get hairy. The last part of the article addresses what helping looks like and what the boundaries are. And again, here's my take on some of these bullet points. What does helping mean to the individual? Well, it means showing concern, asking questions and listening, empathizing and demonstrating care. It means knowing when to back off. It means actively listening with the goal of understanding and not responding. It means offering advice when asked for, but not doing the actual work for people. That's another one that I find difficult. I find myself putting in a lot of work and effort where the other person just isn't willing. And that's another thing that I need to break free of. You need to determine whether or not the extent of your involvement in someone's life and their problems is appropriate. And to determine that, ask yourself, am I helping them because I genuinely care about them or because helping will make me feel better about myself? Mm. Is this even about someone else getting better or is it all about me feeling better about myself here's another real important one is my help wanted or invited or am i butting in do i have to do this and more importantly do i want to do this and all of these are very important questions that you need to ask yourself and you need to face the truth of that's the most important bit there is that you recognize the truth behind the answers. Be truthful with yourself when it comes to how you answer those questions because the level of truth that you put into your answers is going to affect how good you get at not getting hurt anymore in these circumstances. But what about when you start getting there? You start learning how to say no or when to back off and you've got the reputation for being the Harry Potter of the group pursuing your saving people thing. You might be afraid that people won't like you as much. Um, keep in mind that if people like you based solely on what you can do for them, they don't care about you in the first place. Sorry, but that's just the way it is. You may not feel like you're loving effectively if you aren't immersing yourself in saving people. Remember that sometimes you have to love people enough to let them crash and burn. In many, many instances, it is more kind to let people make mistakes than to try to protect them from themselves and in so doing, deny them the privilege of learning and growing as individuals. Lastly, you may not feel like you are doing your best if you aren't all in with the emotions and actions. 
in those instances, keep in mind that your best and your all are not necessarily the same thing. There's a lot to be said for being able to respond appropriately when you want to let your emotions run the show. That, my friend, is you at your best. It's in this place where you can trust your own judgment and act on it with a clear conscience. Now, this has been kind of a heavy-ish subject and very personal for me. I've said it a couple of times, real personal. And I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to the listeners here. And I feel like I owe you a little bit of levity to ease the tension at this point. So I found another little list article that, you know, I'm not really going to endorse the website. It's from a website called hackspirit.com. And it looks like it's just an affiliate site with a lot of self-help kind of products. But, you know, the little blog post that they did here, I think kind of encapsulates what we're talking about here and just so you know who it is that you are listening to here and we're talking about the concept of honesty here comes some brutal honesty for you because there is a list of 17 things here that determine whether or not you may have a savior complex and i'm gonna have shell read through each of these one by one And we're going to go full game show mode here. And for every one of them that relates to me, I'm going to give a little. And for the ones that don't, I'm going to give a little. And yeah, there are some on this list that do and some that don't. But I'm putting myself directly in the hot seat here. Shell, take it away. Okay. Number one, you really want to change and fix some fundamental things about your partner. Okay. I'm going to admit to this one, not so much that I want to be the one that fixes them or changes them, but that I so desperately want to see them fixed and well and change for the better. Mm. I kind of understand that I can't accomplish this, but I get it into my head that my involvement will lead to it. So I'm going to give myself a, you want to call it a point? I don't know how, you know, I think this is like golf. You want the lowest possible score, but that's not going to happen. Okay. Just spoiler alert. It's not going to happen. Okay. What's next? Two, you feel like you know what's best for your partner, even more than they do for themselves. Oh, and let's just, let's just understand that this article is referring mostly to romantic partnerships, but it applies in all kinds of different relationships. So partner or just other person you can read it either way but either way you want to read it (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's been me on more than one occasion too it's like why won't they just listen i mean it's so obvious what the solution to their problem is here why aren't they just listening so yeah i've been there too okay what's next three you treat them like you're interviewing them or checking up on them frequently Okay, I'm going to give myself a little bit of a break on this one, only because I've never been the type that counts the number of minutes between texts. I've never been the type to sit up at night and worry about someone and just sit there watching my phone and waiting and hoping and praying that I hear from them or anything like that. And I also don't go the route of filling people's inboxes and just making a menace of myself. I've, I've never gone that particular route, but I've seen it yeah. and it's 
it's one of the more irritating things about this thing mm -hmm. that manifests in some people. They just can't function if they don't know what's going on with this other person 24 7 365 because they feel like you know that level of involvement is going to help keep them safe and keep them from being hurt and honestly it just it, it doesn't and i think that goes without saying what's next number four you have many ideas and answers for their life and long-term improvements Oh, yeah. 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 This is one that I've struggled with many, many times. And I've learned that advice should come when it's asked for and that help should come when it's asked for. And that all of the things that we take that fool's rush in approach with when we've got the savior complex going on in our heads, it never ends well. If it's not welcome, if it's not wanted, then you really just need to shut the fuck up and back off. Yeah. What's next? Number five, you trust yourself more than any professional or expert to help address their problems. Oh, hell to the no. No, that's <laughs> never, ever been me. As a matter of fact, I have told people in the past that they really should be considering getting actual professional help for the things that are going on in their heads. And in my own therapy, when these situations come up, I'm always the first one to say, you know, the thing that I regret the most about this is that I've pretty much done for this person what I can do for them. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I don't have a degree in anything that would actually help them and move them along. I've done what I can do for them, and I find that very frustrating. But I've never once tried to play someone's therapist. That is just stupid beyond anything I can think of. And not to insult you if this is someplace where you are, but you need to stop that. You need to start recommending that they get the help that they need or, again, just backing off until they ask you what you think. That's even better. But never, ever, ever try to play therapist with somebody. It will be construed as condescension and it will not make things any better. But then again, in the wrong contexts, suggesting professional help can also be considered condescension, which is why I say wait until someone asks for your opinion before you offer it on anything. Okay, next. Number six, you start paying their financial costs. <sighs> okay, yeah. I've been there. Yeah, that's that's all. <laughs> yep, I can, I can see the Forrest Gump face over there. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> and no, I've, I've done this. I've helped people out financially at times when I really should have just let them take care of their own shit. Even at the point when I was doing it, I knew that it would never benefit me. Even if they swore up, up, down, left and right, that they were going to pay me back. Guess what? You know how many times I've been paid back because I helped somebody out and they swore that they were going to pay me back? Um, I can tell you exactly because it's not difficult to count to zero. Right. It's never happened. Okay. Next. Number seven. You run your partner's schedule and organize their life more than they do. Yeah, no, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to put myself in that category. I find that it's hard enough for me to manage my own shit <laughs> without trying to manage someone else's, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've given some advice in this arena before, but never without being asked. And honestly, I can't think of a single circumstance where this is manifested as part of my quote unquote savior complex. It's been more conversational. And in a more strategizing kind of way, as opposed to, 
you know, oh, here comes the idea that's going to save your life kind of way. No, I've, that's never really been me. All right. Number eight, you're working overtime. Will they sink deeper? In certain contexts, I'm going to say that's me. But, you know, the way that this article frames it, that really isn't me. But in the context of working emotionally over time, while they sink deeper into whatever problems they're having, oh, yeah, I've definitely put in overtime on the in the emotional arena trying to pull people out of their funk oh absolutely that's definitely me okay so what's next number nine your romantic spark is eclipsed by a therapist patient dynamic no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna take ownership of that one either because i think it goes back to the whole notion of trying to be the therapist and that is not something that i do What's next? 10. You look after your partner so much you don't leave enough time for yourself. Oh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, can we do it a few more times? Let's see. <laughs> let's see. Four. Yeah. Is that enough? Does, does that make the point clear that enough? That makes the point. Oh, yeah. No, I have sacrificed me time like crazy to be able to accommodate other people. And, yeah. you know, I. that's on me. That's on me. I've almost never let on you know how much self-sacrifice there is when i start getting fixated on someone else and what i need to do for them or the time that i should be spending with them etc and so on that's definitely a me thing it's one of the biggest ones on this list for me um oh okay all right brace yourselves <laughs> 11 you blame yourself for their problems and setbacks oh hell it's the fucking yeah yep I've um, I've definitely done the self-loathing thing over people not getting better. And when it looks like things are moving in a positive direction, then you find out that they really aren't. Oh, yeah, I blame myself for that shit like crazy. Yeah. Okay. Next. 12. You place your own happiness completely in your ability to help your partner. Um, let me think about that for a couple of seconds. Yeah. Now you're looking at me like, yeah, you you have to think about that one. Oh, no, no, no. You you know firsthand. Mm. You know this firsthand. Yeah. That that is something that I have a real propensity for. Yeah. And it does it it does chip away at, at my own emo- good emotional makeup for certain and it does with anybody who has this kind of uh, personality trait definitely. All right. Home stretch here. Home st- right. I'm going to be out of the hot seat in a minute. <laughs> 13. You're certain that without you your partner would be toast. Nah. No, I'm not going to I'm not going to go that route. I've never been the type to tell someone, "Yeah, you'd be nothing without me." That's something that an abuser yeah would say to a partner, and that's never been me. Next. 14. You stay in the relationship even if you're unhappy. Because you feel a sense of responsibility and dependence. Oh, yeah. I've never done that. I mean, mm. yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, that's that's definitely been a thing in my life, too, for much longer than I knew that I should. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. 15. You don't think you deserve someone who treats you better. Now, you see, this is kind of a half and half for me. I'm going to, I'm going to give it the buzzer because I always know. If I'm being treated poorly, I always know that I deserve better. 
Right. And so it's not this self-loathing thing for me where I just come to the point where I don't think that I deserve it. I just get very frustrated because I don't get it. Right. That's that's really what that boils down to for me. Next. 16. Your sex life and emotional bond phrase, but you just try even harder to help. Yeah, I'm not going to uh, give myself a point on that one either because for me, sex and love, number one, are two very separate things in my head. But I've never let sex or any kind of emotional bond that even comes close to that have an effect on how I feel about someone else or the level of help that I want to give them. It's like, I don't have to be fucking them to care about what's going on with them and to want to do for them. So that's not really me. Okay, last but not least, here we go. All right, number 17. You feel bound by an invisible cord that just gets stronger with time. Yes, I'm going to say that that's me here too. Mostly in the context of me getting more and more emotionally involved as things turn more and more to shit. Mm. That's a trap that I've fallen into a lot of times with this. And it's something that it's one of the most dangerous parts of it because the more you watch someone spiral downward and the more you start blaming yourself, the more you then start spiraling downward. And that's where really horrible, nasty thoughts start infiltrating and you start feeling worthless and you start feeling like a failure and it becomes difficult to live with yourself and once you reach that point then you are in a real dangerous place in your head and in your emotions so if that's you then it's really time to start thinking about how invested you get in your relationships and whether or not the other person is reciprocating to a degree that warrants that kind of emotional response from you And I do believe that if you're honest with yourself, you'll say that it doesn't. I wanted to make the point that if some or all of what I said tonight relates to you, it's time to start thinking a bit more about you and a bit less about how the people in your life perceive your level of care, devotion, and even love for them. For evangelicals and ex-evangelicals in particular, this is tough territory to navigate. The religion does nothing to help us manage that part of us. On the contrary, it feeds it, cultivates it, and nurtures it. It tells us that this is the kind of emotion we should be pouring into people. It teaches us that we matter less than we do. It sells us on the notion of decreasing so that when we are hurt, abused, and taken advantage of, it leaves us questioning what it was that we did wrong. And here's your answer. If you ever so much as took interest in another person and provided them with support and comfort with no thought of reward, that's the key part of this. And you can say that you never did anything to intentionally harm them, manipulate them, or attempt to get something out of them by being there and seeing to their needs. You did nothing wrong on the surface. Below the surface, however, being too involved, pouring emotion into someone to the point where you start forgetting who you are is wrong it marginalizes you as a person and leaves the door wide open for you to be abused and taken advantage of even worse it does nothing to help the person you care about it leaves them stuck in a place of dependence and fuels never-ending cycles of mistreatment and abuse as they project and transfer all the things they dislike about themselves onto you that's scapegoating in a nutshell it's also the function of a savior because 
what is Jesus supposed to do for us? We're supposed to be able to transfer all of our defects of character onto him and let him carry them and let him forgive us for all of our shortcomings. So that right there is the function of a savior. Never, ever try to be someone's therapist. Said it more times than I can think about just tonight, but in case you missed it, never, ever try to be someone's therapist, but do encourage clinical professional help when you know it's warranted and when the advice is asked for. Never neglect your own self-care to see to the needs of someone else. Take a good look in the mirror and remember that you still exist and that you don't exist to solve every problem or meet every need in every person you meet or decide to love. You aren't a superhero and you aren't anyone's savior, even if they tell you as much, and sometimes they do. That doesn't mean you're doing something right. That means you're now stuck, always living up to that person's image of you, and the instant you drop the ball in their eyes, all kinds of problems will ensue. Don't put yourself in that position. It is possible to love while maintaining established boundaries. It is possible to care about someone without sacrificing your self-image to build them up. Don't use rewards like affection, praise, or I love yous as proof that you're doing something right. These things are momentary and you need to think long term and you need to think about the other things that this person does when they're around you or to show appreciation for you being in their lives. Talk is cheap, okay? And other forms of affection and praise can just be a smokescreen to keep you around and keep you coming back. Think long-term and look at the big picture. Lastly, it's time to forgive yourself for playing the fool's rush-in card so often in your relationships. It's time to shift the focus back onto you where it belongs. It's time to start using these very noble but potentially harmful tendencies in ways that actually bring about healthy results, even if that means being determined enough to just stand back and watch bad things happen to people you care about as a result of their own bad choices and behaviors. It may seem weird, but that demonstrates love and care in ways that running into burning buildings all the time after people never will. And by striking that balance in your relationships, you might just save two people in the process. You from the burdens that you heap on yourself trying to care about someone to unhealthy degrees and them when they're finally forced to deal with their shit in ways that don't provide them with a scapegoat when they engage in self-limiting and self-destructive behaviors. For ex-evangelicals, it's one more thing we can do to shake off some of the old ways of thinking, ways that keep us from being the people we want to be, forgive ourselves for not being superhuman, and in every way that matters, start getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying 
Unbound. 